Well, let's take a look at Psalm 23. We, uh, we looked at this last week, if you were here. I looked at the first few verses of that, and we're going to finish up. Uh, those Bibles under the chair are for you to look at during the sermon. There will also be some scriptures on the screen behind me. Um, but what we looked at yes, or, or last week was uh, we asked the question, who is God? And the answer we found in Psalm 23 was God is a shepherd. David says he's my shepherd. He's a personal shepherd who is both feeding us and leading us. And man, that was good news. I mean, I, I, I felt encouraged preaching that. I, f- I feel like most people felt encouraged uh, that, that, that heard it and just were so encouraged that God is my shepherd. He's feeding me. He's leading me. I, I can lean into that. I can rely on that. I can trust in that. Um, but then there's also some resistance, right? Because we know if we surrender to God's leadership, His shepherding, He might lead us to some places that are uncomfortable. He might lead us to places that we wouldn't choose to go ourselves. And so there's resistance. Um, Dallas Willard, who wrote the book uh, Life Without Lack, he says this, I believe that one of the reasons we resist fully surrendering our lives to God is fear that He might allow desolation in our lives. And so we're, we're, we're not quite 100% sure we want this shepherd to feed and, and definitely worried about him leading us. And I get that. I get that. Um, when I became a Christian at age 18, uh, I definitely prayed prayers like, God, do whatever you have to do to grow me up as a Christian. Do it fast. You know? and, 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 and now at age 50, I'm like, okay, God, I... I will follow you wherever you lead, but be gentle. Right? God, I, I want you to be king and reign over my kids' lives, my wife Melanie's life. Lord, but be gentle. But be gentle. Right? Because when we're, we're led into these places of desolation, and they truly feel like desolation, especially on the front end, uh, these can, can be difficult, difficult times. So uh, I'm going to be stealing from Dallas Willard's book a lot for this sermon. But he says that if we look at this Psalm 23 as a path that the shepherd is leading us through, that, that it starts in a place of what he calls propriety, and then it goes to a place of desolation, and then it goes to a place of sufficiency. So that's the three parts of the sermon, Des- uh, uh, propriety, desolation, and Sufficiency. Now, last week really was about propriety, right? Uh, We read that the Lord is my shepherd. That feels good, doesn't it? I shall not want. Amen. He makes me lie down in green pastures. Yes. He lets me lie beside still waters. He restores my soul. Yes. Bring it on, Lord. He leads me in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. I think that sounds good, I think, right? And, and so in this time of, of, of us understanding faith and beginning to follow the lead of the shepherd, it feels like it's, it's a sort of contract. It feels like it. It's not, but it feels like it. Where I follow the shepherd's lead and then he blesses me according to the desires that I have for my life, right? It feels like that in the proprietary stage. Nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with that stage. We have to go through it, uh, but, but we become a bit confused. We, we think it's a contract, right? I follow your lead, shepherd, 
and then you meet all my desires that I have for my life. And, and, and what happens is in that stage, or can happen, is that uh, we come to have what Willard calls the faith of the Pharisee. Now, Pharisees were a, a category of religious leaders in the day of, days of Jesus. And they basically, their, their thinking was, if we can follow the law just right, everything will go well for us, for our country, but we just got to get it right. And so in this proprietary stage, this beginning stage, we, we begin to, to believe that. If, if I just get it right, if I just follow the lead of the shepherd just right, then I will get all that I want. And Pharisees are quick to offer solutions. Like you present problem X to a Pharisee and they're like, oh, well, you should just do Y. Right? And it's kind of smug. It's like, just how hard is this? But you're in the proprietary stage, so <laughs> it doesn't seem that hard. And there's nothing wrong with fixes, okay? There, there, are, there are problems that can be fixed, but oftentimes there's more under the surface than we realize. God's at work doing things that we may not understand. Now, there's definitely truth to God blessing His people as they follow his lead. I don't think he's looking at his sheep, looking at them munching on green grass and drinking these still waters and being so satisfied that they're able to lie down. And I don't think he's looking at them and saying, those lazy sheep. He's delighting in the fact that, that they're at rest, they're being sufficiently cared for. Uh, it's a little bit like freshmen, right? I, you know, I, I hear this from sophomores, juniors, seniors a lot. Every year, in fact, they're watching the freshmen, many of you in this room, come into their dorms and get settled in, and they're like, oh, those freshmen, they don't know what they're in for. And it's like a sophomore, you know? And it's kind of smug. You're like, I've been through Kim 1 and Kim 2, you know? Like, look at me. I'm like, don't do that. <laughs> don't do that. I mean... It's an awesome weekend to be here, get moved in on Friday, hang out for the weekend, enjoy Labor Day. I mean, just think about your first day of class. You don't have class. It's awesome, right? Now, organic chemistry is coming, right? Class is coming. But this is a time to delight in, in this proprietary stage of, of, of delighting in the goodness of God and His, His shepherding. But there is a next part of the path. And that path we're going to call desperation. We read about it in the next couple of verses in Psalm 23. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. So here's what's happening. In, in this psalm, what's happening in its sort of ancient Palestine is that uh, sheep are eating green grass at lower elevations. Then it gets hotter, and the, the, the grass begins to burn, and then they have to go up to higher elevations in order to get green grass. The shepherd knows that, and so the shepherd has to take them through that increase in elevation, which is through a path or a valley that has no water and no grass, and it feels like the valley of the shadow of death. And in fact, if the sheep were to stay down below or the sheep were to stay in the valley, they would die. The shepherd doesn't, can't go down to the feed store and get some sheep feed. 
The shepherd has to get this sheep up to higher elevations. And the, the, the shepherd cannot put the sheep on their back and drag them up there. They have to convince the sheep. They have to lead the sheep up to the higher elevations where there is green grass. And so what's in this valley? Well, death, evil, and enemies. Death, evil, and enemies. That's what's in this valley. In fact, David calls this, uh, the, this valley the valley of the shadow of death. Valleys tend to be places that are dark. There's less light in, in the, the crevices of these valleys. You, you can't see anything except what's in front of you, and maybe even that is hard uh, to see. Uh, we live in a valley. We live in the Pioneer Valley, and light is limited in this valley, not just spiritually, um, but literally, and you won't notice it until December when there's less sunlight in general, and so the sun's going down like at 5 o'clock, but it goes down at 4.30 in the valley because the mountains are covering the sun, right? And so valleys are places of darkness as opposed to mountaintops. Mountaintops are maximum light, maximum vision, but valleys are darkness and limited vision. So what's this shadow? Uh, this shadow of death is literally one Hebrew word, literally, and, and it, it means death shadow. It's a very powerful word. We find it several times in the Old Testament. We find it mostly in the book of Job. And if you know anything about the book of Job, that makes sense. Uh, Job is suffering greatly for many reasons, and in Job chapter 3, he uses this word to describe his suffering, and he's actually cursing the day he was born. He's so depressed. He says, let the day perish on which I was born, and the night that said a man is conceived. Let that day be darkness. May God above not seek it, nor light shine upon it. Let gloom, that's that same Hebrew word, death shadow, and deep darkness claim it. Let clouds dwell upon it. Let the blackness of the day terrify it. Later on in Job 10, he's suffering even more. He says again, why did you bring me out of the womb? Would that I had died before any eye had seen me and were, were as though I had not been carried from the womb to the grave? Are not my days few? Then cease, leave me alone, that I may find a little cheer. Before I go, and I shall not return to the land of darkness and deep shadow. There's that word again, death shadow. And land of gloom, like thick darkness, like deep, there's that word again, shadow, without any order where light is as thick darkness. Job's in the valley. He's in the valley. And it's so dark. He's like, light is as dark to me. There's so much disorder, there's so much chaos. I have no idea what's ahead of me. Is there a wolf ahead of me? Is there water ahead of me? I have no idea. I'm in the darkness. I'm in the deep. Now, on one hand, this death shadow is literally the, the physical death. I mean, we're all living in the shadow of, of death. I mean, what if I were to tell, to tell you, you've got six months to live? That'd be upsetting. It'd be very upsetting. And that death shadow would, would be very dark over you, right? What if I said you had six years to live? You'd be less upset, but you'd still be upset, most of you. 
right? That shadow is not quite as dark, but it's there, right? Or if I said you had 10 years or 20 years, I mean, eventually, guess what? We're all going to die. We're all in death's shadow. And this is the, the reason for that is because of sin. There would be no death if there was no sin. The Apostle Paul tells us in Romans 6.23 that the wages of sin, the result of sin, is death. And so sin being not only breaking God's rules, but rejecting God's person. And the effect of that, the result of that, is death. And, And not just physical death, although it includes that, but death in our relationship with God. Death in our relationship with our own selves. Death in our relationships with one another. Death in our relationship with the world. Everything has come unraveled and in disorder. So this is why we read Psalm 23 at funerals. If you've been to a funeral, a Christian funeral, you've probably heard Psalm 23 read. Because you're experiencing the ultimate of the disorder and decay that's in this world due to sin. The person in the casket can't do anything to revive themselves. The person in the room that's attending the funeral can't do anything to revive the person. The person's body and soul have been disintegrated because of sin. Yet, you're trusting in that moment that the shepherd can lead that person through the valley of the shadow of death, into the plateau of goodness and mercy. So not only is there death in this valley, there's also evil. This Hebrew word is kind of a catch-all for all the bad stuff that happens in the world. Disorder, distress, misery, injury, wrongdoing, all of that kind of comes underneath this word that's translated Evil. I feel like in the last two weeks, I've looked in the face of some of this disorder and injury, misery. I've looked in the face of severe mental illness. I've looked in the face of abject poverty. I've looked into the face of sexual brokenness. And it, and it, it is. It's, it's evil. It is a disorder and a decay of Everything. Because of sin. Think of it this way. You, you've made the perfect glass of lemonade. I mean, it is the perfect balance of lemon juice and water and sugar. And you have placed these beautiful, clear, cold ice cubes in that lemonade. You've mixed it up. You've tested it. Oh, this is it. This is the perfect glass of lemonade. You set it there next to your chair. You go get your book. It's a beautiful, sunny day. You're about to drink this lemonade. You accidentally knock it over. And there it is on the, on the patio. And so you get the glass, and you pick up the, the, the ice cubes, and you put the ice cubes in the glass, and you get a wash rag, and you soak up all the lemonade, and you squeeze the rag, and you get the lemonade back into your cup, and you're like, okay, I've got the lemonade back. And I'm... It's not quite what it was intended, is it? I mean, it's still lemonade. There's still a sweetness, a sour. There, there's, there's, there's cold. There's ice. But, but it's, it's disordered now. It's, it's not right. This is our world. This is our world. Because of sin, death, disorder, all the effects of sin have entered in. And this is what's in our valley. This is what's in our valley. Now, if that's not bad enough, death and and evil, we also have enemies. 
that are in the valley. I mean, think about this. You're in the valley of darkness, and, and you're absolutely fatigued, and you're hungry, and you're weak, and you're nearing hypothermia, and then someone starts shooting at you. That's what's being described here in Psalm 23. It's not only death and evil, but enemies. So who are these enemies of the Christian? Well, they're not the Democrats or the Republicans. I'll let you know that. They are sin, the system, and Satan. Sin, the system, and Satan. Ephesians 2, 2 and 3, Paul describes these. All three of these are contained in these two verses. He says, You were dead in your trespasses and sins and in which you once walked, following the course of this world. That's the system. Following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. That's Satan. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. That's sin. Carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. These are the three enemies of human beings in general and of Christians. Uh, Satan, uh, he has limited power. He's not all powerful. He's not all present. He's all, not all knowing. So, so he doesn't have you know, ultimate power, but he has power. He has influence. He can attack the Christian. I mean, we read in 1 Peter 5 8, be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. That, that sounds like pretty serious, does it not? That Satan is an enemy. I was talking to a friend who is a key leader in his church, and he said he was having this, this dream, this very vivid dream of giving in to temptation. And then when he woke up from the dream in the kind of middle of the night, he had this strong desire to go look at porn, and he'd never, he hadn't looked at, at, at any of that for, forever and ever and ever. And I was like, that's an attack. That's an attack. We have a real enemy, and Satan is seeking whom to devour Mostly what he's doing is, is in trying to influence the system, right? This collective of human ideas and thoughts that are set up over and against God. This is what the Bible calls the world, usually. And when it says the world in this way, it's not talking about creation itself. It's not t- saying that the created world is bad. But it's saying this, these, these collective ideas that are set up against God and so he calls it in Ephesians 2, the course of this world. In Romans 12, Paul calls it the pattern of this world. And so these, these ways of thinking are bombarding us constantly from all kinds of places. Ideas about our entitlement to consume goods and services as opposed to God's design of stewardship where we use and enjoy our goods and services appropriately and are very generous with them uh, with others. Uh, ideas about sex that are outside of God's design for gender and marriage and sexuality as opposed to God's design for those things that give glory to him and give good uh, to families and our world. Ideas around work, like workaholism or laziness, uh, this feeling that I don't have to work, that, that I, I'm entitled, right, as opposed to working hard but also resting, these designs that God has given us. So there's this idea after idea that's bombarding us from the system. But there's not only enemies without, there's an enemy within, indwelling sin. Because of the, the, the fall of, of, of the world, of human nature, uh, Paul again says, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. Uh, what he's saying here is not that desires, all desires are bad. God's given us good desires, 
But those desires are tweaked. They're, they're tainted by sin. And so some of those desires are not good. And these are what gives power to Satan and system. Right? That we, we, wouldn't, we wouldn't give in to Satan and system if we didn't have indwelling desires that were working alongside Satan and system. So for instance, if I said, uh, would you like to eat some dirt? Anyone tempted to eat dirt? I mean, maybe if you have a mineral deficiency or something, you, you like desire to eat dirt. I mean, Eva says she would, but anyone else but Eva, don't, you don't want to eat dirt. You're not tempted, right? But what if I said, I have this chocolate cream pie. Would you like to eat a chocolate cream pie, right? But to have it, you have to eat all of it, right? And you're like, ooh, that might make me sick, but I'm tempted, right? Why? Because you have a desire for Boston cream or for chocolate cream pie, right? And this is how the unholy trinity of, of, sin, of Satan and system and sin work together, right? So these are the enemies that we are experiencing in the midst of an already difficult environment that includes death and evil, similar to the chances for success that Sam and Frodo have in trying to destroy the ring of power in the fires of Mount Doom. Right? Think about the environment that they're in. Like it's a very, very bad environment. I mean, Frodo's so exhausted. Sam is having to like throw him over his shoulder to carry him to Mount Doom. And they've been, been dealing with all these voices that are saying, no, 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 keep the ring, keep the ring, keep the ring. And so they've, they've stood up under the environment. They've stood up under these voices. And then what Frodo, he loses it at the end, right? His desire for that power is takes him over. And then on top of that, Gollum shows up and attacks. This is the place we're in. We're in this valley of the shadow of death, evil, and enemies. Yet, Dallas Willard says in his book, the world is a perfectly good and safe place to be. I read that phrase in his book. I was like, you're crazy. What, what? You lost it, dude. But it does seem to comply with what the psalm is saying, and that's why he wrote it, right? I mean, David is saying, I shall not want, even though I'm in the valley of the shadow of death. He's saying, I will fear no evil, even though he's walking through the valley of the shadow of death. No evil? I mean, come on. Maybe we could be afraid of some evils. I mean, come on. Maybe death itself? No. No, not afraid of any evil. The psalm is defiant. I shall not be afraid of any evil. But how? How can we be in that kind of valley and yet fear no evil? It's because of the shepherd. It's because of the shepherd. Uh, listen, listen to it again. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. You are with me. Uh, rod and staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, and my cup overflows. Even though we're in that valley, God is with us in that valley. Our shepherd is with us. Us. He is, does not cut and run when it gets very, very difficult. He's with his sheep. And what is he doing with his sheep? He's feeding them and leading them. The same thing he was doing in the proprietary stage, here he is doing in the place of desperation. It says the rod and staff, they comfort the sheep. 
What's he using the rod and staff for? He's he's using it to lead the sheep. He's protecting them. It's it's partly a protection thing, right? Like a shepherd who's well-trained and skilled can can use the shepherd's crook, and he can catch a predator by the neck and snap the neck in a second. He protects the sheep. The the, the, the sheep can, can be led with the rod and the staff. Get a little nudge here or there to keep them on the path or discipline them when they go way off the path and they're being stubborn. The shepherd can discipline them to bring them back into the path. Right? He is leading them. Uh, but, but he's also feeding them. Right? He's feeding them. He's preparing a table for them. Uh, and that table is in the presence of his enemies. Seems a weird place. Have a banquet. And it's a table. It's not a sack lunch. It's a table. There's a cup. The cup is overflowing. There's an abundance at this table. There's oil that's being, they're being anointed with oil. It's probably a preparation for the banquet. You're washing up. You're cleaning up. You're, you're putting on oil. You're putting on a little hair product to prepare for the banquet. And you're supping at this beautiful table with this overflowing cup in the midst of the valley. This is what God is doing. This is what's at the the center of desperation. When when you follow that shepherd into that place, this is what's waiting. A table, right? A table of abundance. And uh, I remember seeing this in the the movie Fury. It's a a Brad Pitt movie. He's he's, he's leading a a tank battalion in World War II. And they, they go into this village, and they take the village, and uh, it's a hard-fought battle. They lose several men. There's lots of people that are hurt and injured, and they see up in this third-floor apartment these ladies that are st- standing there in the window, and they, they take a couple guys, and they go up there, and you think something bad's going to happen. They're going to do something they shouldn't be doing up there, and uh, they communicate as best they can in German, and they communicate that they want to have a dinner. They want to have, have some eggs. And so they go in, they clean up, they sit down at a tablecloth with crystal goblets in China, and they eat a meal in fellowship together. This is a little bit like Psalm 23. Here you are, you're in the war zone. You're in darkness. And yet, because of the shepherd's leading, because of his protection, you're able to sup at that table of sufficiency there are people in my life that, that remind me of these realities. Uh, one of those, his name is Bob Campbell. And Bob Campbell uh, was a very successful businessman. He started three different companies and sold them for millions of dollars. And uh, he loved Jesus. And he, he, was, he was giving his money away big time. And he gave a whole bunch of money to Mercy House to help us buy, uh, part, part of, partly buy this church in 2005. Such a gift, such a blessing to us to be able to have a facility. And, uh, and then a few years after that, he had a severe brain bleed, and so, so severe stroke, and they thought he was going to die. He, he lived through that. I went through some really intense rehab, and he was, was able to get back to talking and moving, but he, he would never be the same, right? And then his wife, who had walked with him through all of that and had sweet, sweet marriage, she died of cancer. And Bob Campbell has more joy in Christ than most anyone I know. He's found a sufficiency in the midst of all that hell breaking loose in his life that he never knew 
before. And there's a part of me that wants to lean into that and, and, and to rub close to that. And there's part of me that's like, I don't want to have anything to do with that. Like, I want what you have, Bob, but I don't want to go through what you had to go through, right? And, and I think that's an honest way of thinking about this, because some of you are going, uh-uh, don't call me in on desperation. Like, I'm, I'm back here where it's nice and comfortable. Well, let me, let me tell you, God, God, your shepherd, if you're a genuine believer in Jesus, he's calling you to a place of desperation. Not so you can be desperate, but so that you can find sufficiency in him. And this is, this is the, next, the next phase, right? And so some of you, you're in the valley this morning, and you, you may be feeling loneliness because of, of singleness or because you're in a new place, you don't know anyone. Uh, you're in a place of desperation. God, God desires to set a table in the midst of that desperation, right? For some, it's, it's not the pain of being lonely, it's the pain and chaos of being married with kids, and you haven't slept in five years, and you're just like, I don't know if I can keep going, right? And it's a place... Of, of, of desperation. Yeah, God, God's calling you into, into this intimacy with him. There's a, there's a table waiting. You may have kids with special needs. You may be estranged from your family, and there's relationship problems. That you're just like, I want to fix it, but I just can't. And it's leading you to a place of desolation. You may be living, coming here to live from another country. You're, you're, you're trying to communicate in a second language. You're starting a, a program in a second language at a university. Like, these things are difficult. There's a desperation there. But God, God is leading you through that. If you're under the shepherd's care, if you belong to him, he's leading you to a place of sufficiency. So this desperation, again, leads to this next stage, right? This place of sufficiency. Listen to how it's described here. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Describes God both behind the sheep and before the sheep. That goodness and mercy are following the sheep, right? Goodness, God is giving them good things. Mercy, he's showing them compassion. He's also withholding punishment that they deserve, right? He, he's giving them this goodness and mercy, yet up ahead, what's up ahead? You're in the valley, you can't see, but you can know that you know that you know that what's up ahead is dwelling in the house of the Lord forever. It's eternal life. This is why we read this thing in, in, in funerals. We're like, Jesus is going to shepherd this person, a believer, has experienced physical death, but he's going to shepherd them into the house where they're going to dwell with him forever. The place of sufficiency, right? And the only way to get to that place of sufficiency in, in, in this life is to, to rely on God in your moment of need. Willard says this, a life without lack is all about knowing, like knowing, knowing, the unlimited sufficiency of God in the moment of need. Problem with that is we don't want to be in need. We don't like it. He says this as well. He says, they have a proper faith in terms of what they need to believe to go to heaven when they die, but they hope that God is never going to put them in a position of needing to actually trust Him before they go there. And I think this is most of us. When I, can I stay in the proprietary faith over here? And God, Shepherd's like, no, it's, not, it's actually not even good for you. It's not good. It, it, what's good is what's ahead. 
And, and, and the route, you think about it like, kind of like climbing a, a mountain, right? You're down on the, on, on the ground, you're looking up at Mount Washington, and you're just like, this is going to be amazing. I can't believe we're doing this. We're going up Mount Washington. Then you're halfway up there, and you're like, I'm going to die. I'm so tired. I can't go back down because I got to go up and get on that train thing and come back down, right? But then when you're at the top, you're like, I'm so glad we did this. This is so amazing. The view is amazing. Well, if, if it's not cloudy, the view is amazing, right? And you've reached this place of sufficiency. Christian, Christian walks much like this. You come to know Christ, you begin to understand who God is and what he wants, and, and, and there, there, there's an excitement there, but, but he draws us into a, to a depth that is even more exciting than what you began with. And it doesn't feel like it on the front end. It feels like desperation, and it is. But it's bringing you to a place of actually relying on God in your moment of need. It doesn't have to be tragedy, okay? I know I, I share those I share the tragedy story, and those of you that are a little nervous, you're like, oh my gosh, God's preparing me for cancer or something. Don't do that, okay? Don't go crazy. Let's think about lesser things that God may be calling you into that will put you to a place of desperation, right? You're in the proprietary stage, and you learn about Christian fellowship and how we all need to be in Christ with other people, and you're like, oh, I am on board with that, Right? That is the proper way that we should live as Christians. Pastor Rob preached a sermon on that. I'm, I'm down. I'm, I'm doing it. Then you join a discipleship group, and you're with actual humans, and it's hard, and you don't click or, you know, whatever. There's a million reasons why you're like, ah, I don't think that's for me. No, you press in. That's a moment of desperation. And God's, God's saying, no, no, come on, come on, keep, keep at it. Keep, keep coming. There's a table over here. You don't see it yet. You're kind of in the valley here, but, but there's a table. Come to this table. Right? It's in the midst of desperation. You learn about proper giving. Like, oh, Pastor Rob, he preached a sermon on, you know, we should be generous. We ought to give 10% of our income. Yeah, I'm all, I want to be that. I want to be a generous giver. Then you have financial tr- trouble, struggles. You feel desperate. You're like, ah, I don't, I don't think I'm going to do the proper giving. No, 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 no. Come on. Come on over. It, I'm telling you, at the, at, the, at the center of this desperation, there's a table. You can't see it, but it's there. There's a sufficiency in there, financially and otherwise, where he, he is caring for you. But you, you've got to follow him. You can't check out. You can't go, uh-uh, I'm not following the shepherd there. I mean, maybe I'll follow him there and there. That's not how it works. You follow him to that place of desperation. Maybe you learn about the proper way to pray. Oh, man, I read a book on prayer. I'm going to pray every day. Then you get busy. You get tired. Like, I don't think I can do it. No, 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 no. That's the place of desperation. That's where God is calling you to rely on him like you've never relied on him before, to press in, to pray but in a, in a reliance on him, not on yourself, in a way you haven't relied on him before. Or, or perhaps, you know, you sat down with me as a couple and you got premarital counseling and you're like, oh man, we're going to have the best marriage ever. We went through the four in-depth premarital counseling, so they're not that great. Okay, the four sessions, we're going to have the perfect marriage, we're never going to fight, right? And then you get married. And you're like, whoa, I'm a sinner. 
my spouse is a sinner. We're trying to work this thing out. This is hard. And you start to feel the desperation of trying to make a life together between two sinners. And you, you want to check out. You're just like, uh-uh, I'm not going in there. And God's like, no, 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 this is where it's good. Press in. Give and receive forgiveness. There's a table in here. You don't see it, but he's prepared it at the center of that desperation. Or perhaps you, you, you're hearing the challenge to be a disciple, to, to be trained as a disciple in these groups, or you're, you're being challenged to lead a group, and you're like, no, uh-uh. I don't have time for that. I don't have a schedule for that. And, and this may not be happening, but it may be happening. You're looking at your schedule in human strength. You're like, yeah, in human strength, I can't do it. But that's not what we're talking about here. Christ is, is he's, he's saying, make disciples. Like, I'm pretty sure that's for everyone. He said, come on, you can do this. I don't care if you're a busy mom or you're a busy college student. You're not that busy, okay? But, but, but you're, you're, you've got a lot of pressure on you. But you can do this. You can make disciples. And so it's a place of desperation, but it's, there's a table set. There's a table waiting in the midst of that desperation. Willard says this, when you have nowhere else to turn except to God, and you turn to him, your faith of desperation will meet the fullness of God, and you will taste the life without lack as you discover the depths of the faith of sufficiency. Because what you're getting in the faith of sufficiency, you're getting God, and he is infinite. What could be more sufficient than that? This all-sufficient, infinite God. He's following you, giving you good things and giving you mercy. And he's going before you, giving you a house to dwell in, both in this life and the life to come. And all this is made possible by Jesus. Jesus lets us know in John 10, I said this last week, but he says he is the good shepherd. He's the one in Psalm 23 that is so good that even though we're in the valley of the shadow of death, that we can say with David, I fear no evil, right? We, we read this at Christmas time from Isaiah 9. It says, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, that's that same word, deep death shadow, on them has light shown. How is light shining on those that are in the death shadow? Well, a few verses later, for to us a child is born. For to us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts We'll do this. We read that at Christmas, and it's like, oh, it feels so good, just warm. I got my little Christmas light. Look, that context there is that you're in the death shadow. You can't see anything. And Christ shows up, and he shines a light into that death shadow, and not by merely just becoming a human being. He becomes a human being so that he can lay down his life so he himself can go into the death shadow for us. Because if he were not to do that, we'd stay in that death shadow. We'd never come out of there. There would be no place of sufficiency to come out of. 
but because of what Christ has done to lay down his life for us and go down into the death shadow. He's made a way for us to be rescued from the death shadow and delivered to that higher plateau of green grass and still water and a place of rest. This is, again, why we read Psalm 23 at funerals. Because of Jesus. Because if we've come under his care by grace, through faith, and what he's done for us on the cross, we can know that we know that we know that he will shepherd us through the valley of the shadow of death, both the shadows that we experience now, but even the ultimate death shadow, physical death. So you may be in the valley this morning. You may be in the valley this morning. He's with you. If you've come under his care through faith, he is with you. His rod and staff are there. Let, let them comfort you. He's there. He, he, he's establishing a table with an overflowing cup for you. You may not be able to see it at this moment, but he's, he's providing that. Just keep pressing in. Keep following him. Don't check out. Don't, don't say, uh-uh, no, I'm not going to go there. I know you're leading me there, but uh-uh, I'm not doing it. You're missing out. There's a table there that's waiting for you. Uh, for, for others, you, you, you may be feeling invited to move toward a place of desolation, right? Like to actually choose to go there. And what I mean by that is, is he may be choosing you to sacrifice in some way. And you're saying, no, I'm not doing that. Why not? Why, why are you saying that? Well, because you're going to feel desperate. It's challenging. Maybe he's calling you to deeper prayer life. Maybe he's calling you to share your faith with your friend. Maybe he's calling you to be in a discipleship experience. Maybe he's calling you to lead a discipleship. I don't know. Whatever he's leading you to, generous giving, whatever it is, it's going to make you feel desperate because it's, it's, it's hard. But it's also that place where Jesus meets you and he prepares a table for you. And it's a place where you experience his sufficiency. For some, you've never come under the care of the shepherd. I want to encourage you to do so today. You may even have come to church today because you're in the valley of the shadow of death. You're like, I don't know what else to do. I'm going to go to church. Maybe I can feel better. Well, I'm telling you, the only one that can bring you out of that place of shadow is Jesus Christ. The one who died, the one who was raised, the one who now offers this light and life through what he's done for you on the cross. So receive that by faith this morning. Receive it as a free gift and then begin to follow him. Next step, next step, next step, next step. Some days there's going to be beautiful vistas and there's going to be green grass and there's going to be still water and rest. Other days you're going to be so down deep in that valley you just you won't be able to see. But I'm telling you, whatever place you find yourself, he's with you. He's with you. You're his rod and staff, they comfort you. He's preparing a table before you. He's giving you peace. We're reminded of that table every time we come to this communion table. I mean, think about that, right? Jesus, it's on the night in which he's being betrayed, the night before his death. Right? Death, evil, enemies swirling all around him. And what does he do? He hosts a dinner. And it's a simple dinner. There's bread, there's cup. He takes bread, he breaks it, he gives it to them saying, take and eat, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. What he's letting those disciples know is that he is about to go down into the death shadow. He's, he's going to let it cover him. 
and take him down. Right? But he's doing that so that he can then rise in de- de- defeating sin, death, and hell and then offer that to you and me in the sufficiency of this gospel, this good news. And it is in, in relying on that grace that comes from the gospel. We are both saved and we are ongoingly transformed as his disciples. In the same way, he takes the cup. After he blessed the cup, he gave it to them saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sin. He takes care of the root problem, which is sin. All those effects, death, evil, enemies, all those are taken care of when he takes care of the root, which is sin. He's like, I'm going to take care of it. I'm going to go down into that death shadow and I'm going to defeat it, and I'm going to come back, and I'm going to offer that victory to you. Not only that, he's going to create a flock of sheep who have come under the share of the, of the care of the shepherd. And so as we take this bread and cup, we're also we're, we're, we're experiencing a community of sheep that have said, I, I, I'm going to walk no matter what Jesus says. I'm going to follow him, and we're going to do it together. And whether we're in the green pasture or we're down in a valley, we're going to do this together and we're going to rely on the sufficient grace of the gospel given to us through Jesus. Amen. If we don't get this, we will not follow Jesus as a church. If we don't live like this, we will not be able to follow his lead. He always leads in a way that will require Reliance on him, like real reliance, not lip service reliance, not propriety reliance, right? Oh, as long as we're like good people and we just kind of show up for services, look at, no, no. He, he is calling us to a deep reliance on him. And it feels desperate, but at, in the middle of it is this table, I don't know where you are this morning. You, you, you may be in the valley. You may be enjoying some green grass. We all need to be reminded of the sufficiency of the gospel. And so if you're a follower of Jesus, we welcome you to come to the table to take the bread and the cup. And uh, if you're not a Christian and you're like, I'm, I'm, I'm just kind of beginning this investigation, we're really glad that you're here. We're going to ask you to remain in your seat while we take communion. And just think about what you're hearing and then please... Seek someone out after the service and talk to them. I'll be down front. I'd love to talk more. Um, and others that you may know that are Christians that you could reach out to and talk to. But, but this, is, this is the most significant decision that you will ever make. Deciding to come to UMass, that was a big decision, okay? Deciding to come to Amherst College, big decision. Deciding to place yourself under the care of the shepherd, that is the biggest decision you'll ever make. So um, don't leave this place without having a conversation. If, if you're like, I'm, I'm interested, I want to investigate, I want to press in uh, further. Let's pray.